Welcome to the Grove Community Church Worship Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. Here's this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. When Laura and I were in seminary, you don't have a whole lot. There's no income, so to speak. There is uh, really, we, we were young. There, there's no time. There's just not a whole lot other than school. Uh, for, for the two doctors in the room, I would imagine that's kind of what it's like being in med school, right? It's just kind of like, I'm just slugging through this thing. It's rough. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's tough. And so Laura and I were in, were in seminary together, and it was our anniversary. And Laura, I don't even remember which anniversary it was. Do you number? Okay, you don't know where I'm going with this. She gave me one of, the, one of the greatest gifts she could give this guy. She gave me a trip to Chicago to watch the Chicago Cubs. All right? I'm a huge Cubs fan. Grew up a Cubs fan. Some of you guys are like, why? Some of you guys are angry at me now, Chris Fuse, who is a St. Louis fan. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> but anyway... She gives me this gift to go to Wrigley Field. It was something I'd always wanted to do. It was, it was a bucket list item. And we were in seminary. We had no means. I still don't want to know what she had to do to be able to afford a trip from Kentucky to Chicago. We stayed in a downtown hotel. We rode the L out to Wrigleyville. We had pizza on a sidewalk cafe. And then we went and watched the Cubs play. And it was the year that Sammy Sosa was going for the, the home run record. And he hit a dinger that night that we were there. It was unbelievable. So I, just, I feel like I have to tell you this. I'm a Cubs fan because when I grew up, there were three things you could watch during the day as a kid, right? You could watch game shows, soap operas, or Cubs baseball. Because Cubs didn't have lights at Wrigley Field. And because they didn't have lights at Wrigley Field, every game at Wrigley Field was a day game. And so almost every day of my childhood for a number of years, it included at least part of the day watching that day's Wrigley game, or that day's game for the Cubs. And if they were playing at Wrigley, it was always during the day. And so it is a dream of mine to go there. And she gets me these tickets, and I'm just almost breathless. Like, I'm like, it's Wrigleyville. We're going to Wrigley. We're going to experience this. And I had no idea what it was going to be like. Wrigley is a special place. And I don't care if you're a sports fan or not. It is a bucket list place. It's one of those, it's one of those ball fields that you go in, and you're just like, wow, this is pretty spectacular. So we walk in. And I'm telling you, it was so loud. So the other thing that Cubs games are known for is that they're packed. Like, they sell out almost every game. And so when you go in, it is a packed house. Like, wall-to-wall people, there are, it's just loud. And I walked into this scene, and I got chills. It was just moving. And then when Sammy Sosa 
hit that dinger. We were sitting down the, the third baseline. We were kind of uh, behind third base, um, not quite to where the outfielder was. So we were between third and where the uh, left fielder would be. And he hit that home run right. I mean, it was just like right here over us. And the place erupts. The whole stadium is shaking with noise. There are people throwing things out of excitement and, and beer slinging everywhere and, and, and yelling. And I mean, it's just chaos. It's ah, everybody's going crazy. And I just, I sat there with chills. And I'm not going to lie, I might have even had a little tear. <laughs> it was that moving for a Cubs fan. So some of you guys are like, you're just weird. I know, I get it. But some of you guys know what I mean, right? It was one of those experiences. This year, when Laura and I were in Colorado, there was a Rockies game being played. So we decided, hey, let's go down to the stadium. We happened to be in Denver this night, and we walked down to the stadium, and there was a game going, and it was silence. No one was in there. Just the, just the two teams, just the people that were running the scoreboards, just the people that were in the boxes that were, that were on the radio, just a handful of people. The, the, I guess uh, the, the security was out there, but that was it. There was no one, and it was dead silence. And you could hear, you could hear the ball hit the leather of the glove. You could hear the, the bat crack. And we were standing outside of the stadium. It was the weirdest thing. COVID's created this kind of emptiness. When Bennett went to, uh, to the Alabama game a few weeks ago, it was his first game back as an alumni, he, he, he shot a picture from where his seats were, and it just looked weird. Y'all, might have, y'all were at Ole Miss last week? It was probably like that. It's just weird, isn't it? Nothing like what y'all experienced as students. Today we're going to look at a verse Psalm verses, it's a psalm, Psalm 100, and it's only five verses. And as we read this, we're going to connect it back to this idea of Wrigley Field versus an empty stadium. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Psalm 100. This is what it says, verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You might have heard this before, maybe even sung part of this psalm before. It's a popular psalm, and it's the psalm of thanksgiving. In fact, the heading says, a psalm for giving thanks. Scholars believe that this was actually part of a a larger liturgy that would have taken place every fall when they were coming in for the harvest worship and for the sacrifices and, and for the celebration of thanksgiving that was part of the Jewish calendar. And so this would have been part of that liturgy, part of what they sung and said as they came into the city of Jerusalem and then into the temple. What's interesting about this is the breakdown. And we're going to take a few moments to look at the structure because when you read scripture, structure often gives meaning behind what's there. 
if you don't understand that, maybe this will make it a little bit clearer. But the structure of this psalm gives meaning to what the psalm is saying to us. All right, that's important to know. And here's what it's going to tell us. It's going to tell us why we give thanks. And it's going to tell us how we give thanks. All right? So those are the two things that this psalm is going to address. Why and how. So let's start with the why. Now the problem with starting with the why is it's actually in verse 5. So let's turn to verse 5. What's the first word of verse 5? It's on the screen. You can say it out loud. For. All right. So when you see this word for or therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? For. It's always connecting. So this is an explanation for everything that comes before it. Why do we give thanks? For the Lord Yahweh is good. How many leaders do we see on television that are just good? <laughs> it's his essence. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, good defines who Yahweh is. And if good defines who he is, then everything he is about is goodness. Now, it doesn't always feel good, does it? Does God's correction always feel good to you? You can answer this. All right, no, it doesn't for me. Like, when God corrects me, it, like, it stinks. I'm like, okay, I got it, and you're a jerk. But he's not. He's good. We're saying he's a, he's a good, good father, right? Or, or that's one of the things that we sing often. He's a good, that's who he is. He's a good father. And so, he is defined by goodness. Well, okay, so that's one reason why we should worship him. One reason why we should give thanks. Because the God, Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is over everything, is good. The God who created this is good. The God who's going to be at the end of all this is good. The God who loves us is good. The God who is watching out after us is good. The God who has plans for us is good. Which means that everything that's attached to him is good. Even his correction is good. Even if it doesn't feel like it's good. I mean, I've used this before, but there are times that Bennett tells us now, thank you for doing that. Even though it stunk at the time. Thank you. He's good. This is the other reasons why we give thanks. Because his steadfast, his chesed, his love endures forever. So not only is, his, is he good, but his Goodness is attached to love, and that love never ends. Have you thought about that? In a world where we can go and get a divorce tomorrow, Laura, don't get any ideas. His love endures. His love doesn't end. His love doesn't have a threshold. His love doesn't say, okay, I'm done with you. I'm walking away. His love doesn't have a, uh, a, um, a time stamp on it either. Like, if you're not fully on board with me by this date, I'm going to pull back. He doesn't do that. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I do that. 
I do that with people all the time. If I'm honest with myself, I'm going to kind of start backing off of you because, yeah. But he's not like that. God's love is not like that. It endures. So he's good and he loves and he loves endlessly. It doesn't have an end to it and there is no cap on his love. And then he says, and his faithfulness to all generations. So these are the reasons why we give thanks. Because God is good. That's who he is defined as. And that goodness leads to a love that has no limits on it and no time stamp on it. There's absolutely nothing that we can take away that's going to end or do uh, that's going to take away from his love for us, right? And then beyond that, he is faithful not just to us but to all generations, God didn't say, okay, you know what? I got tired of humanity like a thousand years ago. He's not saying, you're the last generation I'm going to reach out to and love. He doesn't look surprising to a lot of people at the United States and say, oh, you're glorious. And you are wonderful. And when you're done, I'm done. That's not how God works. He is faithful through the generations. It goes on and on and on. Which then, by the way, just as an aside, uh, please hear me because this is something that's huge that we don't talk about a lot. What kind of legacy are you leaving that God's love echoes through your legacy? Are you leaving a legacy for generations to your children, to your grandchildren? Are you living in such a way that two generations from now they will know stories about you. Not, not necessarily know about you. Not necessarily know what, um, what your favorite things were. Not necessarily even know what profession you were. But, but will they see and experience the ripple effects of your goodness and your love? Does that kind of make sense? Or are you leaving a legacy? Uh, this is an aside. Because God is in the legacy building business. And he builds legacy with love and goodness. And he's inviting you into that. So, the answer to the why. Why is it that we give thanks? We give thanks because of the person of God. Because of who he is. At the very core of his being, it just requires our thanksgiving. Now we're going to look at the other verses and how it is we give thanks. There are seven imperatives. So in the, in the Hebrew language, there are seven words here that are imperatives. There are verbs that are imperatives. This is what you must do. What's interesting is you have three in the first two verses, one in verse three, and three more in verse four. So it goes three, one, and three in those couplets. And it depends on how your, your layout is in your Bible, but that should be laid out that way. Do you guys have that in your Bible where it's broken up into four sections? Four kind of paragraphs? Okay. All right. So verse 1 and 2, verse 3, and then verse 4. So it goes 3, 1, and 3. So let's look at this structure. This is what's important. Go back to verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. This word for joyful noise means to shout with acclamation and with joy. This was that feeling I had when I walked into the stadium for the first time at Wrigley Field. And you come out of, the, out of the breezeway there and you step into the actual arena and it just, the wave of sound hits you. 
and the excitement is palpable. And then when Sammy Sosa hit that cork bat home run, I don't care if it was a cork bat at this point because <laughs> everybody was juiced anyway. When he hit that home run, the whole place exploded. The, all of Wrigleyville, which is the surrounding area, I mean, there were shouts outside of the stadium. There were people on rooftops, literally, if you know anything about Wrigley Field. There are literally people on the rooftops all around. Sorry, Chris, I know this is like the worst analogy ever for a St. Louis fan, but I'm still rocking it. It was madhouse, crazy, just chaos, but all joyful. There was a power to it. It was a rumble that filled the whole section of the city. Guys... Why aren't we that excited about God? We're more like a COVID stadium. We're more like Bryant Denny was for Bennett a few weeks ago where there were 18,000 people in a 100,000 seat stadium. Silent. We're like that rocky stadium where you can just hear the shaboom, shaboom, and that was it. You can hear a few yells from the, from the managers, and that was it. And we were outside the stadium, like weird. But this word for make a joyful noise is more like Wrigley Field at full thrust. So how do we give thanks? We do it with our whole being. We do it in such a way that we're not obnoxious, but that we move the atmosphere around us. Then he says, serve the Lord. So the first way is that we exclaim, make a joyful noise, right? And I'm just going to put joyful here. That's the first. Be joyful. Does your joy in the Lord, does it just ripple around you? Do you change the atmosphere of the room with, with the spirit in you and moving? Are you that excited about your faith that it, people just catch it? And again, I'm not talking about, don't be that obnoxious person that's trying to be joyful. Or that, yes, Jesus, all the time, that just does not work. People are like, mm-mm, that guy's weird. But be joyful. Change the atmosphere. Be like Wrigley Field. The second one here is serve. So how do we give thanks? We serve. Have you ever thought about that? That being thankful isn't just, oh man, I'm so thankful for you. Part of being thankful is serving. If you're a parent, if you have a little one, you know this, right? There is nothing fun about changing a diaper. Absolutely. Hey, I'm sorry, bro. It's just not. There's nothing fun about helping a kid out when they're sick in the middle of the night, is there? There's nothing fun about stitching up a kid, because I think you've had to do that, haven't you, Matt? Like stitch up a kid on the fly at, a, at the house or something? I mean, there's nothing fun about those things, but you serve the child because you love them. And you're thankful for the opportunity to, right? I mean, I can't imagine having three under four years old. Cool, wow! It's insaneness. But you serve because you love. 
So part of being thankful is serving, and it comes from a place of love. Does that make sense? If you love, and if you have this love of God in you, then you serve naturally. It just flows from who you are. So the second way we give thanks is serve. The third way is that we, what's that second part? Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence. So what does that look like? Not rhetorical. What's that look like? How do you come into his presence? It says with singing. But what does that look like for you? Are you creating space to be in the presence of God? Are you creating opportunities to be in the presence of God? Now what's interesting is that all three of these, the first three, are all done in everyday life. This is not confined to the church. It's not confined to just one part of your day or one part of your world. This is all, this is all encompassing. This is all of your life. Then we get to this middle, this middle imperative. What is it? What's, what's the first word of verse 3? Know. And what are we supposed to know? That he is God. And that he is the God who made us. And we are his. We belong to him. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So all of this is part of knowing him, right? So being joyful, serving, and coming into his presence is all ways that we know him. But this word know means acknowledge. Yeah, I thought so too. It means to acknowledge. So to know is to acknowledge that he is God. So how do we give thanks? We acknowledge that he is God with our life. We acknowledge that he is God with what we do. We acknowledge that he is God with, with how we live. We acknowledge that he is God with our attitude. We acknowledge that he is God in every part of our life. You see, you see how this works? So to know him is all of this, but then it's to acknowledge it. A lot of us know about him, but are we acknowledging him? There are whole sections of my day where I can go through it, where I know about God, but I'm not necessarily acknowledging him. Am I the only one? So to know God is to also acknowledge it, to, to let him be a part of every part of our day, to invite him into every one of those situations that we're a part of, every part of our life. Then we get to these next three, and I've already run out of room because I'm a horrible writer. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this, five, six, and seven. Five, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Six, give thanks to him. Seven, bless his name. So enter... Give thanks. And what's the last one? Bless, right? All right. Where is this taking place in this passage? The what? All right. The tabernacle or the, or the temple, right? But think about it this way. It's his abode. 
It's the presence of God. It's his house. This, is, this language to enter into his courts is like inviting someone into your house. You're inviting them into the inner part of your house, to the courtyard, to the place where the family hangs out. You're inviting them to the kitchen island. If you have a big kitchen island that people sit around and interact with, you're inviting him into that family room. If that's, if that's where you invite people, if, when people congregate, it's in your family room. It's that. We're entering into his presence in his place, in his temple. Okay, so all of this happens outside. All of this happens in his presence. This is the world. This is in, in, his, in his abode. And all of this is tied together by this understanding of knowing him. And when we enter, we are to give thanks. Now, this word for give thanks means to heap or to cast. So I picture a cast net. And have you ever watched someone do this? Have you ever done this, Joe? Have you ever thrown a cast net? Right? I figured you probably did off your wharf at some point. But do you have to put it in your mouth. Have you, have you guys done it off of y'all's? Yeah, so you put, I don't know exactly how to do it, but don't you put a weight in your mouth and then you just you sling the whole thing. And it opens up and it, spin, it spins out and lands and, right, and, it, and it sinks down. And then you, you pull it in and hopefully get something. But the idea of this is that you throw your whole, when you're throwing those, have you watched someone do it? They throw their whole body into it, don't they? It's all of their being. I mean, they got their mouth engaged. They got their, their legs, their hips, their arms. Every, every part of their body is slinging this thing out there. They're casting a net. And that's a beautiful picture of what it means to give thanks to God. How do we give thanks? With all that we have and all that we are. We cast everything into it. We throw it all out there. God, this is everything. And we sling it out. That's what this word means. To give thanks means to cast it all, to heap it out there, to throw everything into it. So how do we give thanks? We're joyful. We serve. We come into his presence. We acknowledge him. Then we enter into his presence in a deeper way. And we give thanks. We give all that we have into it. And then the last thing is to bless his name. Our life becomes a blessing, not only for him, but for others. If someone were to pick an adjective for you, would it be that you're a blessing? That you have blessed them in some way? Because part of giving thanks is blessing. So this first section is what happens in the world. This second section is what we do in our personal relationship with him. And it's all about acknowledging him in the world and in our personal life. And all that we have, we acknowledge God. And as we acknowledge him, we know him deeper. That's how you give thanks. Thanks is a lifestyle. Thanksgiving isn't something we celebrate once a year. It's not just a word that we throw out there. It's not when you go, Lord, thank you for what you do or whatever you do. I don't know what you do in your private time. I don't know how you praise God. But that's not what Thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is everything, all of you. So why do we give thanks? Because God is good. How do we give thanks? We do it with joy. We do it with service. We do it with coming into his presence. And we do that everywhere we go. We do it with entering into a deeper relationship with him. We do it by giving thanks, casting our whole self into it, and by blessing him and blessing others. When we do all of this, we are acknowledging him with our life, and we are living out thanksgiving. 
The reason why I chose the analogy of the empty stadium is because the church is shrinking at alarming rates. It just is. What the world needs is not more churches. It needs more Christians engaged in acknowledging God with their whole being. We have plenty of seats. We have plenty of opportunity for people to experience God. But the reason why they're not is because Christians aren't living a lifestyle of thanksgiving. Christianity in North America has become like an empty stadium, a COVID stadium, when it's meant to be like a raging Wrigley Field, sorry again, Chris, when Sammy Sosa hits the home run. It's that shout of joy. And I'm not saying, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we have to get more people into church. We, the church, have to get more church into the world. We have to be God's presence in the world. And if we do that, then lives will be impacted. People will come. People will be connected to God in new ways. That's what the world needs. That's what Thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving. And so the challenge for us is to not just hear Psalm 100 and go, oh, that's a neat little song. That's awesome. I'm going to read that from time to time and feel good about myself. Psalm 100 is a challenge. It's saying, jump in. There are seven imperatives. Acknowledge me in all of your life and see what I can do. Why? Because God is good and this world isn't. And it needs help. I hope this message was meaningful and powerful to you. But I also hope that it was challenging. And as always, don't just hear it. Put it into action. Until next week, have a great one.